This is the 966, episode 104. <laughs> we had to do a quick check to we did. see if we could remember which one it was. 104. Hello, Richard. How are you? Hey, how you doing? I guess it's a good sign when you lose count. That's true. And we're there. We, we're in losing count territory above 100, <laughs> so that's good. We do have a really awesome and special episode this week. We'll be speaking shortly with Mr. Gautam Sachital. Chief Executive Officer of the King Abdullah Financial District, CAF. Richard, this is so cool. It is cool. And, I, you know, if you were to listen to the 966, I think you'd come to the conclusion that Saudi Arabia is overrun with really bright, really easygoing, conversational, engaging executives. It's, it's not ridiculous, but I mean, everybody we have on is not only on top of their game, but they're just really enjoyable to talk to. Gautam is just, what a wonderful conversation, apart from all the content and apart from the fact that KAFD is so fascinating. Just, again, yet another really impressive individual yep. uh, in a senior position over in Saudi Arabia. Yes, we will be getting to our conversation with Mr. Gautam in just a few minutes. Before we do that, and before we get into our one big things this week for episode 104, just want to say thank you, everybody, for listening, watching our we say actually we say it fairly often, but it is amazing to us both. The viewership and listenership for the 966 is growing and it's amazing how much bigger it keeps getting. So thank you to everybody. It's very humbling. Um, we just want to say thank you for listening and, and being here. And if you have a moment, uh, subscribe. Our subscriber numbers keep going up as well. So I feel like this is working by asking over and over. But if you haven't done so yet, YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, I think it is 29 podcasting platforms total. Actually, don't even, I've lost count now, Richard, but it, wherever you're listening to your podcast, just hit the subscribe button. We want to come to you as it were. So uh, wherever you're getting us. Uh, that, it, lost count in, in keeping with the theme of the day, I lost count. Can we do, can we have a big emoji with the hands together sort of expressing appreciation? Oh, the thank things? you one? Yeah. yeah the that, thank you. Yeah. That's, that would be how we think about our listeners. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes. We, uh, from, from us to you, Please accept this emoji hand <laughs> gesture. <laughs> our, our grateful emoji. Thank you. <laughs> Richard, let's get into it this week. What's your one big thing? Uh, one big thing this week is the 93rd Saudi National Day is coming up on Saturday, September, September 23rd. We've done uh, segments on the National Day because we find, or at least I do, but I think you share this uh, fascination, Lucian, you know, with the the the, the things that Saudi Arabia uh, finds meaningful, because the National Day, the National Day is the 93rd, so we've been doing this, but it commemorates the unification in 1932 of the Central Nudged region with the uh, Hejaz in the West, so along the Red Sea. And these regions merged to form the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And it was named after, obviously, the House of Saud and, and, and led by the nation's first world uh, ruler, uh, King Abdulaziz Ibn Saud, but it's a chance for Saudi citizens to celebrate their cultural heritage. You know, they mark the day with folk dances, songs, traditional festivals. I mean, one of the cool things, and if you if you get the Seustig Review, our, our you know, constant and, and relentless plugs for the Seustig Review because it's useful. We had an article this week about how uh, the in 13 cities across the kingdom, there'll be aerobatics carried out by the Royal Saudi Air Force. Uh, you know, the Ministry of Defense announced the dates and locations across these cities. So there'll be typhoon, F-15s, tornadoes, F-15Cs, 
aircraft um, in the eastern, you know, on, on the Red Sea and in the Gulf, there'll be uh, the eastern and western fleets of the Royal Solid Navy will be doing celebrations, marine processions and displays, you know, military parades all over, biker parade. Um, but the, again, we're talk, talking about identity. And, and I want to say one of the really cool things in our previous episode with David Rundell, when we were talking about the impact of King Salman, he referenced Saudi nationalism. And he said, this is not Arab nationalism. This is simply, you can envision a time where a Saudi would be a very proud Muslim and a very proud Saudi at the same time. And David, David in his commentary said, you know, that wouldn't really have been the case 20 years ago. And you absolutely can see that. And, and one of the interesting things is Saudi Day, Saudi National Day, which has been celebrated for 93 years, and not always celebrated, just as we mentioned, early aughts is when it became a, a bigger thing. Um, but this is different from Flag Day. Flag Day was just introduced. I mean, it's a brand new holiday in 2023, celebrated on March 11th. And Flag Day commemorates the adoption of the Saudi national flag. So that's March 11th, Saudi national day, September 23rd, big day, founding day. Again, a new celebration celebrating on February 22nd. So when we first, Lucian, I think, so we started two years ago. Um, maybe one of the early episodes was on National Day. Uh, since that first segment, there's been two, I mean, Flag Day has been introduced as well as Founding Day. And and Founding, and, and so, you know, the Founding Day celebrates the whole foundation of the first Saudi state. So it takes you back the 1400s and it's just a fascinating exercise that we talk about it all the time in narrative and self-awareness and uh for lack of a better term saudi nationalism and the creation not the creation but the cultivation and the and the growth and incubating of a saudi identity which i think is racing along because I think Saudis are always Saudi every Saudi I've known for the last 40 years is very proud of being Saudi very proud of being Muslim uh, but I think there's a tremendous confidence and pride in in Saudi Arabia and Saudis uh, that has grown over even markedly over the last five years or so so anyway we have these three holidays now the latest coming up September 23rd, 93rd, sort of the granddaddy of holidays, now joined by the Flag Day and Saudi Founding Day, all part of uh, a sort of evolving, growing Saudi identity. Congratulations to Saudis celebrating at the beginning of next week. It is usually also when you're there. There's so many little events going on. So you mentioned a lot of the like, you know, sort of big celebrations and big uh, visible parades, but there's <clears throat> street level stuff. <clears throat> Excuse me, I got to... So I got a little choked up talking about it, um, <laughs> but it is it is amazing. And, and it's like you'll, you'll have these sort of local celebrations street to street. And I know that the cultural mission um, or the Ministry of Culture has so many different events sort of capturing and, and bringing into these younger generations the history that they're all very proud of. So anyway, I think it's a great holiday and I think it's a great one big thing. It is nice. They some, you know, like they'll have they'll wear a traditional attire and 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 that sort of thing. And the courses like, and stuff. It's it's cool. Yeah. yeah. One big thing, um, it, and it explains part of our disorganization. But about eight hours ago, His Royal Highness the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman gave an interview to Fox News, uh, Brett Beyer, 
who spent a week in Saudi Arabia talking with other ministers and officials, traveling Saudi Arabia, really culminating with this interview, which took place with the crown prince in Sindala Island, the new island being built. It's actually in the background of the interview, which is amazing. Um, and so that's just outside of Niam, just <clears throat> really a groundbreaking interview. It's the first that he has ever given to an English language news outlet like this in English. So for that reason alone, it's there's just a lot there. They talked about Vision 2030, the economy, foreign policy, Iran, Israel, the United States, oil, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, legal reforms in Saudi Arabia. I, I mean, they're just... It, it's really a wide ranging interview in which we get a lot more than just what was said out of it, you know, um, and I think we're going to start getting into this a little bit more in subsequent weeks, Richard, because it just happened and you can kind of see the reverberations throughout not just the traditional media outlets like any Saudi search algorithm of news in the last 24 hours is completely dominated by this interview, which is, again, groundbreaking. Just some initial reactions. I know we both watched it, and I think a lot of our listeners and viewers have probably watched it by now because it's it's literally everywhere. But first takeaway, we don't get a lot of interviews like this. This is the first ever of its kind in English. It was fascinating alone because of the rare insight that we got into decision-making from His Royal Highness. And if a picture is worth a thousand words, you know, since he so rarely does interviews like this at all, and of course, this is the first in English, to call it newsmaking undersells the value here beyond just what he said. The prince came off as both highly intelligent and sharp, capable, I want to say energetic. These are just my perceptions. I, I've watched it twice because it's so interesting and there's so much in there and we just don't get it, as I've said, but um, willing to do such a wide range in a single conversation in English from you know, the economy to energy and foreign policy, he came off as, I think, quite affable, likable. He, he sort of had this like confident but welcoming demeanor. He was smiling broadly and often. When he jumped into a question being asked about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, he did so politely and with a smile, but also to disagree with the wording of the question. There's a couple moments like that in the interview. I just, I thought he handled it extremely well. And this was a really big spot. Fox News is seen across the United States in the heartland. Um, this actually merges into a later takeaway, but I thought Brett Beyer did a good job with this. Not a Fox News regular watcher, but this was very <laughs> well done. He asked tough questions of the Crown Prince. And I think it's good that he did. I think the Crown Prince's answers were really good. Takeaway number two here, there's, we could talk about this for three hours, but I think the second takeaway that I think really stands out to me as we get this look into what he's thinking and how he's thinking about it is he's laser focused on data and, you know, things like GDP growth, like things large and small, but, you know, GDP growth, he mentions in almost every little segment of the conversation, throughout the conversation, he's talking about, you know, by the way, if this helps my GDP in any way, then I'm going to do it because it's in Saudi Arabia's interest. That's sort of like a general takeaway. So it's not just the data and the numbers, but he like we saw this. We saw his vision kind of come to life talking about it. You know, he's he's he uses sort of big sweeping phrases like he thinks Saudi Arabia is the biggest success story of the 21st century and, you know, things like that. We just talked about National Day and the amount of pride Saudis have these days. 
I just thought that this was like, I thought it was really well done. And I thought he did an amazing job because this was a unique opportunity for him to reach millions across the US and around the world, but also sort of reset people's images of, of him and of Saudi Arabia. Um, just the background imagery, just what we saw in that interview. I mean, Cinda look, looks beautiful. They obviously had a nice setup there, but it, it was visually stunning. So, I, I mean, I guess we can go point to point, you know, about what he said, and I'm going to kick it over to you, Richard, because I, I definitely want you jumping in here. I just, it was impressive. It was, a, it was sort of a bombshell. Um, and I think it was revealing. So I'm going to, I'll reveal a little bit of my political biases. Uh, all three of my kids are Gen Z. My oldest, uh, you know, a young captain in the military is doing his graduate work. Uh, uh, kind of cool. And we talk about politics. And, you know, I, I can, I think it's fair to say, you know, that Donald Trump uh, is a major figure in U.S. politics. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, I have concerns about Donald Trump because he's probably the most divisive figure in America. I don't believe, I think he has difficulty with the truth. And I, and, and I, he has actively undermined key institutions, democratic institutions that I think are very important. So I have issues. And I talk about this with my son, my oldest, who's in, in uh, you know, of like mind in many ways, but he often says, it's just that they're all so old. And he says, I get the politics and I get the, what you're, where you're coming from. And I absolutely, you know, am in sync in many ways, but I can tell you that my generation really struggles with these guys. And so I got this. So this MBS interview, I literally this morning sent it to my oldest and said, you can see why Saudis are so fired up about this guy. Um, Cause he's young. He's sharp. He's smart. Uh, he appears to be engaging and approachable, connected, tuned in, you know, he's playing video games and this sort of thing. It's just, you know, you know, it was striking to see a 30, what is he? 38? What is he? 38. He's, he, he's exactly the same age as me, which is uh, wild because like, so he's so much more successful. Yeah. But, well, then, you know, I mean, he's, you know, he had a, he had a little bit of a head start, but, uh, um, you know what I mean? So I literally sent this to T this morning and said, just as a follow on to our conversations about how, regardless of what you think of the policies of our current leading politicians, uh, you know, they don't really connect with Gen Z in many ways. So that's one point. So so to, to sort of affirm what you're saying, you're very engaging, very approachable, very easy to like uh, experience. The second thing that I thought was really interesting, and it harks back to what we were talking about on my one big thing, which is the, the confidence. Um, he's done a really good job in positioning Saudi Arabia in such a manner that the world is coming to him. You know, he's, you know, we, we just had did an announcement of the uh, India Middle East. They just announced the India Middle East Europe Economic Corridor, uh, which Saudi Arabia was just smack dab in the middle of. You know, the U.S. is engaging Saudi Arabia for many reasons, one of which is because Saudi Arabia has become closer to China and, and is upping its relationships, economic and otherwise. 
Um, but sitting there in the middle of Saudi Arabia going, okay, this isn't going to change our mind about how we're going to engage in, with the world and how we're going to conduct our foreign policy, but we'd love to have more, you know, when you listen to him, you know, we'd love to have, uh, you know, better relations with you. You know, he talked about Iran, he talked about China, he talked about the region, you know, we want to pull the region along as well, because this is all important to our, our local project, which is Vision 2030 and, and, and a, you know, economic overhaul of the economy. So uh, he's really positioned this country well, where they're not beholden to anybody, you know, to a certain extent, uh, but they're people, they're an attractive partner. Everybody sort of wants to dance with Saudi Arabia. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so he, and he's done this, I would say, in the course over the last two years. And, and we've, we've marked this from January 2021, the Alula summit as when things started to switch from competition to diplomacy. Uh, but you can see it's come a long way in that period and that he's in a very good position. He's put Saudi Arabia in a very good position. And, um, you know, kudos to him. But, you you know, you, you, you see this guy, he's, you know, maybe he's a little, you know, he's a little wonky. You know, we know he's extremely hardworking. We know he's extremely uh, detail-oriented. Um, and it shows. It really shows. He's, he comes across as a really capable, really plugged in, uh, uh, de facto uh, leader. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a great, I think it's great if you want to say it's PR, it's not PR, but it's been it's a great representation, I think, of where he is and where Saudi Arabia is right now. Yeah, to your son's point, he's like the invert. I don't want to say anti-politician because he is a politician, but he's like the inverse politician where in the West and, and, you know, where you're the traditional politician you're thinking of talks so much all the time and is just trying to get ideas out there. And then the follow up is just whatever. It's like whatever happens when they get in office, the opposite. It's like all we see is Vision 2030 taking shape in pretty much every sector. The economic diversification that is happening, we're just seeing it happening. And then we finally get to hear from the man making it happen. And then when he's asked what happened or, or when he's asked by Brett Beyer, hey, like, is there anything like, you know, wh- what do you want people to understand about you? And he said, well, this isn't me doing it. And I'm paraphrasing. It's not me. It's we are doing it. It's the Saudi. Saudi Arabia is doing it. We need buy in and everybody's buying in. So this is a we th- It just is like the ant- like you think about criticisms of traditional politicians and it's just the inverse. It's like it's well, just amazing. And you can kind of see his his mind is turning and ideas are flowing faster in his head really than anyone can talk. So it's like, it kind of makes me think of like what one would think of or how Theodore Roosevelt is portrayed a get action guy. He's just like his worst nightmare is being on vacation and doing nothing. You know, he's just like, (laughs) all right, let's, you know, (laughs) Uh, so just, yeah, it's cool. I I would actually say, I I think he's a very adept politician at the moment. And and let's, let's face it. He's made some decisions that may not have been, you know, maybe been termed rash or or not fully thought through. I think he seems to have grown in the job for sure. But I mean, even when he's talking about Israel, he makes it very clear that we get, you know, we're not doing anything until there's real movement on Palestine. It's something that's that's we're acceptable to us. But he does it in such a way when he says like it's getting better every day. Mm-hmm. He does it in such a way where it's not doesn't close the door. It's diplomatic, but you understand. You, you're, it's clear where he stands. 
Yes. Uh, and I think, you know, he's in that wonderful position where he says, absolutely, you know, and this is one of the things that's very important when, when, when he basically, and this is in the post-Ukraine world, post-Ukraine invasion world, where he basically says, we're disengaging a little bit from the U.S. worldview saying we're just not we're not in lockstep with us when it comes to whatever communism iran whatever we're our own person we still have great relationship with the us but we'll make our own decisions we'll talk with whomever we wish we will be a free agent and we will pursue our own national interests and uh, that puts you in a if you know if, if again if people want to be on your dance card that's a great position to be in and that's where he's put saudi arabia and so I do think he's a very adept politician. And I think he's, he, you know, he, he said a number of things without saying anything, which is what good politicians do. But mostly I think he's a true believer in the, in the Saudi vision. And I think he, you know, he puts, he puts Saudi Arabia and this vision 2030 project before everything else and everything else follows in order from how to preserve it and further it and strengthen it. And that includes better diplomatic relations with the world. Yeah, he moves forward so many conversations happening on Saudi Arabia. I mean, just the comment about Iran, it's been widely speculated and, you know, people have been quoted as saying, well, if Saudi, if Iran gets a nuclear weapon, then Saudi Arabia will get one. And Brett Beyer asks him that directly. And he's like, oh, yeah, we, we have to have one if they get one. That's why we don't want them to have one, because we don't want that arms race in the Middle East. That's consistent with what they've been saying for forever. But it was like I said, it just moves these conversations forward so that you know, the new issues can come about and they can work to resolve them. And it just, you know, so he had that candor that made him, like I said, affable, make him, you know, a little bit less politician-y and a little bit more, which means he's a good politician, right? But a little bit less that way and a little bit more like, hey, this is just like what we're thinking. I mean, this is how we're doing it. This is our plan. It just is, it was good. It was really good. So anyway, this is going to be, this interview will be referenced for a long time in the media on the show. Different quotes will be reverberated out as they always do. So it's just kind of a seismic moment, I think. So yeah, a crazy one. So um, Richard, what do you think? Let's get to a really good conversation here with Mr. Gautam, Gautam yet, yet another fabulous senior executive in Saudi Arabia. Great discussion. Enjoy. We are pleased to welcome onto the 966, Mr. Gautam Sachital, Chief Executive Officer of the King Abdullah Financial District, also known by the acronym CAFT in downtown Riyadh. CAFT is, of course, the city within a city that has redefined Riyadh's skyline and is the city's most sought after business address and lifestyle destination. The district is home to many of Saudi Arabia's largest companies and regional headquarters of international corporations doing business in the region, as well as the kingdom's finest restaurants and real estate. CAFT is now owned by Saudi Arabia's Public Investment Fund, PIF, whose headquarters, the PIF Tower, is located in the financial district. An incredible building I visited in Riyadh in June. Gautam took over as CEO of CAFT in January 2021. Before that, he was CEO and COO of the Dubai Multi-Commodity Center, the DMCC, which was eight times crowned the Global Free Zone of the Year. Gautam, welcome on to the 966. Nice to see you again. Thank you very much, Lucien, for that uh, very appropriate introduction. And Richard, lovely to meet you as well. I joined only in June of 2021, not January. Uh, excuse so me. <laughs> two years and two months, I think, in, in this job. 
Let's get to your personal journey. And we we learned, obviously, that you started in June 2021. And, and we also learned earlier that you haven't been able to play as much golf as you would like because you've been so busy. But can you tell us how you arrived at KAFD? So uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, there was a point of inflection in my life, I think, where I said, you brought in golf. So I said, this is the point in my life when I'm going to lower my handicap, do a lot of travel, retire from a full-time job, and then CAFT came along. And I said, this was something that I would absolutely love to do just because of the sheer size of this district, the stage in its evolution, the ability to bring a project that was kind of, it had slowed down for a few years to actually bring it to life and make it the prime destination for business and lifestyle in the region. In fact, indeed, globally as well. And it was too great an attraction for me and uh, it was a no brainer basically. And this is where I am today, two years on. But prior to that, uh, Lucian mentioned you were in Dubai, yes? And is is there is there overlap from that experience with KFD, or is it's a different sort of feel? Well, it's it's pretty similar yet different, and I'll ex I'll explain both. So it's similar in the sense that when I joined DMCC, it was just after the financial crisis. So I think it was two thousand and ten, and so it was a similar sort of experience of bringing around a district that had incomplete infrastructure, where some of the projects are stalled, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And it's really about bringing it to life and making it the most livable district in Dubai at that time. But more importantly, we actually made it that free zone, uh, especially for commodities that, as you said previously, I think that we, during the five and a half years I was CEO at DMCC, we were named the number one free zone in the world. And it's gone on since then to get three more awards as number one free zone in the world. And it was also uh, voted the most livable community in Dubai at the time. So yes, that experience is very similar in terms of uh, building a district, building a community, creating a place to live, work, play, etc., making it a free zone. But more importantly, we had another role there in my previous job, which was about trade standard setting and trade facilitation. So we worked with certain sectors such as diamond trade, the bullion trade, the agri trade and so on. And really we were seen as the de facto standard setters for a lot of that. Now that doesn't exist in this job. Now I'll go to the difference here. CAFT in terms of size and dimensions is completely different. It's spread over 1.6 square kilometers land. Now, that is almost similar to the financial district in London, the city of London, which is one square mile. So in terms of dimension, you're talking substantially different. We are close to completing the delivery of 95 buildings, and we're building on another 18 plots as we speak. But more than that, we have to build the rest of the land bank. And that is what we're engaged in at the, uh, at the moment, which is tremendously exciting. What is the status of that? Um, CAF seemed, you know, contained and nearly finished. Where is, can you tell us a little bit more about that? So our biggest challenge, of course, now is to keep the district livable as we build for the future. And that describes it all. It's a bit like 
being in Manhattan, it doesn't stop construction. There's always something happening around the corner. It's how you maintain that livability as you're building for the future. Because you can't say, let it stabilize, let's say for a few years, and then we start building again. Because there's a huge demand supply gap here. There's a huge appetite uh, for businesses to come in. There's a huge appetite for hospitality keys, for residences. And these are all the asset classes that we're bringing to market as we speak. Talk to us a little bit more about CAFT as an experience in terms of living there, working there. I know it's a it's the the leading smart city in Riyadh, in Saudi Arabia, and and one of the leading cities in the world for that. Can you tell us about that and the importance of being a smart city and 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 how that how it touches every point of anybody who is in there and how that how it uh, impacts their experience in CAFT? Wonderful. I mean, I've got to say that I work here as well as live here, so. I talk from personal experience over the last two years, for example, where let's look at the size of CAF today and what sort of asset classes it has. Our aim is to make CAF that 24-7 district that doesn't sleep at night, that doesn't sleep at weekends. And how can we assure that that happens? CAF has five distinct asset classes, which a lot of districts either don't have or have realized it and are building those asset classes. And let me explain that. Number one is, of course, office. We've got almost a million square meters of grade A office real estate, where you'll have almost 100,000 people uh, working in, uh, in our precinct over the next 18 to 24 months. Number two is residences. At the moment, we have over 200 residences. And not only are they fully occupied, but we have a huge wait list. So we're actually furnishing uh, our upcoming apartments to be able to meet this demand. So there definitely is a demand to live and work in the same location without having to encounter traffic, for example. Uh, but also what we're trying to do, therefore, is to create that vertical open living where you can live and work in the same location. Now, let's look at the third asset class, retail. Retail is absolutely uh, what you call the sort of uh, the veins or the arteries of any district. If you want to make it a 24-7 district, then you need enough retail, F&B, general retail, and so on. And I think you mentioned it previously, Richard, which is we've got some really good restaurants here and that dining scene is evolving as we speak in fact just before coming here i went uh, to the newest opening jones the grocer to have a sandwich so we're creating different experiences for our customers where i can literally today live in a tower in the caft and i can walk down for my breakfast that's number three number four of course is hospitality we have three hotels uh, under a very advanced stage of delivery. You're talking about 630 plus keys, but that hotel portfolio will grow substantially as we build out the rest of our estate. And then finally, entertainment. And you might say, what's entertainment? Cinema. We have the first cinema in Saudi in our district. We are designing an indoor adventure park. There's going to be lots of similar entertainment options for our residents 
Now, every district creates a green spine, it creates walking and cycling tracks and so on. But what we will have is things like indoor adventure parks. So imagine that you're working here. You definitely want to live here. You want to dine here. You've got general retail that'll come as well. There'll be a school, there'll be medical facilities. Everything that you need will be here, which is what makes it a 24-7 district. Now, to answer your question on what does smart mean? Smart means making it, going that extra step from being just a smart district, as everyone calls it, to making it a cognitive city, a city that uses AI, that uses data, that uses data analytics, all with a view to hit three touch points. One is about sustainability, which is looking at how we manage our um, repairs and maintenance, for example, what sort of uh, moving from reactive to preventative maintenance, for example, looking at all of our sustainability initiatives, and we can talk about that separately, but also smart building management, smart homes. Uh, and then ultimately, it's about the customer experience. If it doesn't positively impact the customer experience, we won't do it. So we look at three aspects, sustainability, efficiency, and customer experience in anything that we do with smart city solutions. We've got about 48 initiatives at the moment, and we make a substantial investment over the next three years to actually bring these bring these to fruition. You know, it, it, the KFD is a fascinating story, and I like it because it reflects um, Saudi Arabia doing the work. And I say that because you look at Neom, for example, you're talking about sustainability and and, and smart city and, and, and autonomous is they're, they're doing this from a greenfield in Neom, sort of the same thing. They're trying to greenfield. KFD is a different story. I mean, it was launched. I don't know if most of our listeners know it was launched in 2006. It's been a giga project in the making for a long time. And there was a time I remember in 2013 where people were looking around going, what are we going to do with all this office space? We, we, you know, it's, it's depressing the market. What, what are we going to do with KAFD? Um, and then PIF took it over in 2018. And, and now it's just fascinating to hear you talk about it being oversubscribed. It's, it's like a little laboratory. Um, it's not a little laboratory. It's an enormous laboratory. And then you're you're sort of a harbinger of what Saudi Arabia is trying to do on a larger scale, and it's it's and I like it, like I said, because it's it's a little bit you know it's a hit it's it's a it's a you know two steps you know one step back two steps up. It's been a learning experience, and in in that regard, very valuable. Is that correct? No, absolutely. And and one of the benefits we have, as you mentioned, PIF PIF as our shareholder, uh, and PIF moving into the district. And a lot of the PIF subsidiaries moving in as well. This is what creates the start of a business ecosystem, which then encourages the private sector to come in, which encourages regional headquarters to come in. Now we've got uh, we've got legal consultancies, we've got um, we've got uh, strategy consulting firms, uh, we've got international banks, we've got local banks, we've got the capital market authority that will come in. Uh, the stock exchange uh, has a tower here as well. So really, that enables us to create that perfect business ecosystem of public and private, international and local. It's very exciting. And the momentum is extremely strong. 
in, in, in terms of traction, in terms of both the office properties, the residential properties, as well as retail. And, and Lucian will attest to that. I mean, we've both been in Riyadh this year. Lucian's been several times. The, it's palpable. The, the, you know, the KAFD as a hot spot is palpable. I mean, you know, it's, it's how everybody in the city feels that way. It's the place to be. Um, and I, I would like, if I may, um, it's really a striking place. And both Lucian and I have had an opportunity to tour the, the, the metro uh, stop there. Um, which is amazing. But can you talk a little bit about the design of KFD? I mean, because the way it's designed is to take advantage, uh, to mitigate sun, to manage wind. I mean, it's a really intelligently designed place. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at when it was conceived, uh, around 2008, for example, even today, all those years on, this master plan is absolutely ahead of the times. And why do I say that? The master plan was designed to by Henning Lawson, and it's been built on top of a wadi, a natural wadi. So the master plan basically harnesses wind flows and channels them through the wadi. So the wadi therefore is, and this has been tested, it's about seven to eight degrees cooler than the rest of Riyadh, which is fascinating. Also, between the ground floor and the wadi itself, which is the bottommost level, there's a two to three degree temperature difference. So that makes us naturally, shall we say, climate friendly. But over and above that, 25 different architects designed various towers. Now, all of these towers, the wadi itself, the master plan, Everything is taking from the rich heritage of Saudi Arabia, whether it's the desert, whether it's the uh, crystals, whether it's the desert rose, and has really given it that very modern twist. And if you imagine, and you've seen this, there are 25 architects that have designed different buildings, but they all kind of fit together beautifully. And each of these has features such as most of the towers recycle gray water eternally. Uh, we have an automated waste collection plant. The district is fed by two district cooling plants that we own uh, that have a capacity of 100 refrigerated tons. Uh, so you don't have chillers sitting on top of the roof, you have chilled water going through. Uh, this, in, we have two uh, tier four data centers so we have a very large, uh, shall we say, uh, corridor of infrastructure that supports this district. There are solar panels. There's the shading, as you said, that cuts out light. Uh, we are working today on uh, projects such as water recycling, recycling groundwater, using it for irrigation, for instance, of separating waste at source. Uh, so that only uh, the general waste goes in separately into the automated waste collection plant, whereas the green waste goes separately. Uh, we're working with organizations such as Sumitomo to trial out new technologies that will basically coat the tops of buildings uh, and even the public realm so that you can actually reduce 
the heat absorption, reduce the heat island impact. Last year, we planted about four and a half thousand trees in the district, almost half a million shrubs and 4,000 square meters of grass. So really all of these just add to the inherent sustainability credentials of the district. And to put it in perspective, CAFT is the largest lead platinum ND certified district in the world. And today, 43 of our towers, I believe, have either lead gold or lead silver. Now that magnitude, you would not see anywhere in the world. We've done uh, segments on Salmani architecture. And we've had uh, an architect come on and talk. It's just really fascinating. It's not just a collection of towers. This is a thoughtfully designed, integrated, cohesive, visually attractive space. And, and, and it's really striking in that way. Indeed, it is. And every time I look at it, and my camera's always out, I'm always taking pictures from different angles because it looks different. It looks different during the morning, different during the day, different at night, different from different angles. It is fascinating, and I never tire of looking at it. Gautam, how much fun are you having? <laughs> it seems like you're having a lot of fun, um, and it's really cool to see because CAFT is sort of central to all of these sort of events going on in Saudi Arabia now, and there are so many, um, just one after the other. How much fun are you having? I'm having so much fun that I can be overwhelmed at times. <laughs> <laughs> you you mentioned so, and, and Lucian mentioned this in the in the opening. And PIF uh, took over the project in 2018. Uh, we're fascinated by PIF. PIF, and we actually have a, have a guest on coming on in a, in a few episodes up just to discuss the public investment fund because it's it's a unique vehicle. It's a if it's a different animal and it's doing things that I don't know that other sovereign wealth funds have done. And it, it in in this in the domestic scene in Saudi Arabia, it's it plays a big role. How what kind of relate what what does it mean to KAFD to be, you know, owned primarily and and you know have PIF at the head of what you're trying to do? That is an interesting question. I mean, I, I would use the analogy of saying strong parent, strong child. I think that tells you everything. So they fund us, they have funded us, they support us. Uh, as I said, we're part of their ecosystem and therefore they become a part of our ecosystem. Um, we can lean on them for a lot of uh, specialties that we may not be able to have or look at the other portfolio companies that are doing wonderful and exciting things. So really in a lot of ways, uh, we benefit from being owned by the PIF and from being coached, mentored, supported, uh, advised, you know, you can name it. Uh, it's its a symbiotic relationship. Is, is that the tallest tower in CAF or is it the Aramco tower? Yes, the PIF tower is the tallest at 385 meters. The Aramco tower is not that tall. The second tallest is what we call the zebra. It's twin towers uh, that go up one stories because it looks like a zebra it's a beautiful tower two towers well if you're a local and it is funny you have i'm sure you have kfd locals i'm sure when you go from your residence to your office you're seeing familiar faces and you know and, and this sort of thing which gives that sense of community which is exactly what you're after um it's got to be i'm sure their age building has names but you're talking 95 structures right 
And how many more are are, 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 are online coming on? Uh, I couldn't say that. All I can say is that there are several projects in the pipeline at the moment. But time will tell how many we build and how soon we build it. The point is that we will accelerate the development of the entire land bank. And so it all depends on how master plans evolve uh, and what the demand is, what sort of asset types. So it'll be a mix of these five asset types, as you said, but we might need to balance a bit more uh, away from the office uh, real estate into other asset types because you need to have more people being able to live and work here because that reduces traffic flows, for example. If you're creating a business ecosystem, you need more hotel rooms, for example, to support that business ecosystem. So that, you know, you cannot have a business traveler coming in from the US, for example, coming to the airport, coming straight to the metro station and cabs, and then doing their work and saying, oops, I need to look for a hotel somewhere outside. Let me find a car. By the way, on the cars, we signed a deal with Kareem, which is like the Uber in the Middle East. Uh, we signed a deal with them last week where they will have Kareem cars and captains stationed within CAFT. So it's easy for someone who comes into CAFT to dine or to work to find a taxi to go out of the district. They don't have to wait. So these are sort of conveniences that we're constantly looking at in order to improve the customer experience. Yeah, my guess is, is you project forward. So right now, interesting enough, KFD, you've got you've got the the metro is going to open shortly. You know, it, you know, maybe at the end of this year, maybe, but it's coming. You've got a major metro station right at the thing, right at the KFD. The city's moving out north and west. You know, north. Mm-hmm. You know, and you've got the new Marumba has been announced. Uh, King Salman Airport is is out that way. You know, it's not going to be too long before KAFD is not really on the edge of the city. Um, How how do you see the future unfolding for KAFD? I don't believe it's at the edge of the city even today, Uh, because the city has been steadily moving north and towards the airport. So you almost become the centerpiece for the city. And that's why it's important or was important for us to activate all of that business ecosystem which then, as I said, is that definitive business ecosystem that feeds on itself, which is why that connectivity to the rest of the city through the metro lines, to the airport through the metro lines, to the city buses that are starting up now, all of these become important. And we don't look only at external mobility. We also look at internal mobility within the district. So we have multimodal transport internally. We started shuttle buses, for example, last year. And so they transport you from a dedicated parking structure to your office or your residence or to a restaurant or through the day. We put that on the house for our tenants. Uh, we are building a network of 42 skywalks, which will connect all of the buildings. So you literally come into the metro station. There are two skywalks that connect out of the metro station and you can walk through the district and through the retail, basically, to anywhere in the district. That's a 24-7 climate-controlled mobility solution. We are introducing micro-mobility solutions, such as e-scooters, for example, and, of course, the public realm, which is 67,000 square meters, I think. It's an eminently walking uh, 
area where you can walk throughout the district. So all of this makes this district very, very unique, sustainable, environmentally friendly, pedestrian friendly, uh, eminently walkable, climate controlled, as I said, so et cetera, et cetera. It's an amazing place to walk around, especially at night as you know things cool down a little bit. It comes alive with sort of a different crowd in a way. People coming to visit for restaurants. We've shared photos on WhatsApp out of just like, oh my gosh, look at this angle. It's amazing. Um, other, so there are other giga projects, mega projects being developed. Richard talked a little bit about that. What sort of, um, and, and those projects have their own CEOs. What sort of you know, lessons or challenges um, would you or, or, or are you sharing with leaders of those projects, things like Daria and the Red Sea and other areas around Saudi Arabia? What can, and you're the first and furthest along, what can they learn from what you're doing? I think uh, ultimately all of us are working towards the same Saudi Vision 2030 objectives. So even though we are developing similar asset types in some cases, the aim is common for all, basically. It's to build infrastructure that actually makes Riyadh, for example, uh, amongst the top 10 economies in the world by 2030. So we share a lot of stories. If you're talking about uh, what's happening in contracting, uh, you know, the challenges that they face, the opportunities that we have, how do we learn from each other? These are conversations that happen all the time. Um, but yes, you said, as, as you said, we are the front runners in a sense, and we've got that sort of uh, experience, uh, ha- having been through it. Obviously, that information sharing becomes extremely important amongst the CEOs, and we are developing forums that enable this to happen in more uh, formal fashion and more regular fashion rather than individual conversations. It's it's an invaluable laboratory. We've done a segment on zero gravity urbanism, which is the driving design between the uh, behind the line. Mm-hmm. Um, and so many of the the tenants, basic concepts of zero gravity urbanism, are being put in place at KAFD. You know, you know, a highly concentrated vertical existence that covers all the needs from you know, entertainment to retail to the professional to family residents, all these things. And, and that's why I said, this is, you know, KFT is endlessly interesting because it's a learning, it's a learning spot. It's a, you know, not only are you accomplishing these things, but you're learning as you do them. As, as we come to a close here, tell us about dining and the restaurant scene in CAFT. It's to me the the restaurants are, some of them are taken, you know, almost exactly from London and New York and, and put in Riyadh, but, and then sort of twisted slightly to fit local demands. Tell us about why that's important. And then tell us about what restaurant is your favorite? Like, what would you recommend to somebody visiting CAF for the first time? Like what's your favorite restaurant? Interesting. Now I can't favor a particular restaurant, but Dang, talking I, thought, about- I was going to try. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe when we're not recording, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you. I'll, I'll absolutely tell you. But why are concepts from London and New York coming to Riyadh? It's because the residents of Riyadh are world travelers. They have experienced these in their travels. If you look at the population here. It's 70% of the population is under 35, highly educated, very ambitious, very well-traveled. 
so they know what they're looking for and which is why these concepts that come international concepts that come in whether from london or new york or elsewhere this is what our customers are looking for so we will have probably between 65 and 70 F&B outlets in the next two to three years. That will make us a definitive dining destination. Now, already we've got these new concepts opening. Now, as to my favorite, uh, the one advantage I have living and working here is that I get vegetarian wherever I go. I'm vegetarian. Generally, they know I'm vegetarian, so I'm fed well wherever I go in a sense. Now, Il Barretto was voted the best Italian restaurant in uh, Riyadh recently. Uh, you've got, uh, that's Italian, of course. Then you've got El Camino, which does really good Mexican food. You have Chalmont, which is French. You have AOK, which is Greek Mediterranean. Uh, we've got Black Tap Burger and Shakes, which is really nice because they do vegan options as well. You've got Earth Cafe. And there are plenty others opening. We've got some wonderful coffee shops. A Starbucks that is the only Starbucks, green Starbucks in the region, because Recycles lead uh, certified uh, uh, platinum, I think. So we have coffee shops that are open 24 hours, lots of restaurants and the fit out at the moment. I couldn't choose a favorite, but it depends on time of day, time of week, and what I feel like. I could take you and I, I would recommend any and every of these restaurants we have here because our team chooses very carefully the concepts that are coming into the district to balance the high price, mid price, uh, variety of cuisines and so on. And we are able to do that because CAFT owns a majority of the real estate in the district. And that's what makes us unique again. We don't have a large number of buildings that are owned by others, we own them. So that gives us the ability to zone retail and to bring the concepts that would create the variety and that would create that dining destination. And of course, uh, all with the purpose of uh, a customer delight. You need employees to have breakfast, lunch, and dinner here. You want residents to be able to eat here, order in here, uh, and you want Riyadh and indeed the world to come and dine here in Cat. That really is an interesting angle because most, uh, you know, the, the template is a, is a contractor builds, you know, a series of buildings, whatever, and then leases them out and very often becomes absentee. So, I mean, KFT is, is involved at every level in terms of the quality and the choices and, and the service provided. And I realize I have to get to work because I've only been to AOK. I know Lucian has been to more. So yeah, so AOK is awesome, and so is Il Barreto is probably I think the winner. But (laughs) you you (laughs) can't count them. Don't agree with that. Yeah, he can't can't pick sides. Yeah, but (laughs) but in any case, we need to get to work. And special. (laughs) I mean, if the concept weren't unique or special, it wouldn't be here in Cat. That's the way I put it. Mr. Gautam Sashital, Chief Executive Officer of the King Abdullah Financial District, also known as CAFT. Gautam, this was awesome. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your insights and uh, your valuable time. This is, this is really great. Thank you very much, Lucian. Always a pleasure talking with you and Richard as well. Lovely to talk to you. That was our conversation with Gautam Sachital. We thank him for his extraordinarily 
amazing insights into how CAFT is run and operated. Just a cool dude and a great, great conversation. <laughs> yeah, it is. Thank goodness he didn't retire and go play golf. Yes, he, 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 you know that he, he was he was headed that way, but he got called uh, you know called from the bullpen. Actually, he's never been in the bullpen; he's a starting pitcher. But to, to come lead calf, what an exciting thing! And like you said, what a huge project! He wanted to be part of it. Great conversation. Among the decisions, I cannot promise that I would make in the same situation, <laughs> but he uh, is doing some amazing uh, things. So, yeah, thank you to Gautam. Shall we get to Yella? Yella, we should shouty in a minute. Yella. Um, Yella number one, as part of the inaugural Cityscape Global Meeting recently held in Riyadh, promoters of NEOM were on hand to present plans for the uh, Trojina and Oxagon segments of their $500 billion NEOM mega project. The event was meant to lure potential investors and property buyers through a high tech sales pitch with immersive ex exhibitions and panel discussions featuring members of NEOM's leadership team. Models of each site were included along with VR, virtual reality, headset tours, architectural drawings, and other media relating to the development, which is being marketed for a first phase completion by the end of 2025. It's amazing that this is happening because we have just in the show discussed how things are happening in Riyadh, that things are not just being said they're going to be done, but are being done, which gives me the realization right now that all of this cool stuff is probably going to happen at Neom, including the ski resort and uh, Oxagam and Sindala Island. We got a really good look at it just yesterday. Things are happening so quickly now in Saudi Arabia. It's kind of amazing. And so the Cityscape was a, a major show. And CAF, our guest today, Gautam Sachital, just led a you know group and delegation to cityscape they were featured there broadly so it's consistent themes all over the place richard but um this was cool because first of all there was a live stream of construction progress happening on these sites <laughs> during this whole presentation which is amazing to think about it's just like hey in case you had any doubts by the way this is all the work that's happening right now it's like a a surf cam or like a wave cam, you know, it's just like, by the way, we don't have to go to the beach to see what the waves are like. <laughs> it's here on the camera. So that's really amazing. And I think they are going to end up being very successful in attracting investment here, especially in the, uh, I mean, especially in real estate, but also especially in some of these industrial sites, Oxagam. I mean, now that you have that India to Europe corridor nearby, I mean, I don't know, this is exciting. Well, at, you know, if, if foreign investment in these things is going to be the, the ultimate barometer. And Cityscape Global was not just NEOM. It had 350 exhibitors. And they, they announced like 17, over 17 billion in real estate projects. So you had, you know, everybody. And, yeah, CAF and, is, I mean, CAF was, a, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you had a lot of, and a big crowd. Um, and it would have been fascinating to see. I have to say the reason I love this one is, I'm just a sucker for scale models. I love them. I can remember, <laughs> I can remember visiting Saudi bin Laden headquarters probably 20 years ago, and um, they had a scale model of the Holy Mosque and everything, and it was huge. You know, it took up a huge room, bigger than my house, and it's just fascinating stuff. I love to see it, and and so the, the, apparently this this cityscape, you know, for Oxagon and Trojina and even Sindala had these amazing models and virtual reality experiences. And 
So I'm, you know, I, I'm a, a kind of a little kid. So, so you know, the 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 real estate impact aside, the models had to be really cool. I would love to have seen them. The it's so funny you <laughs> mentioned that. I completely agree with you. I think scale <laughs> models are one of the coolest things ever. Yes. I always I always wonder what happens to them like after because yeah. a lot of times there it's like, hey, this is part of our like showroom. It's not even necessarily for like giga projects like this, but hey, it's part of our showroom, like whatever. And then you know they sell all the houses in a development. Like what happened to that amazing like two scale <laughs> of the neighborhood? And you know similarly in Saudi Arabia, I was in Al Zamal Group's headquarters in Riyadh. And they had a massive scale model of a of a entire shipbuilding and port that they built, right. and it was so big and so detailed. I was like, "This is the coolest thing ever!" So you spend all day here. Yeah, exactly. Sure. <laughs> um, that it just it is so funny you mentioned that. But yes, this you know we should maybe attend Cityscape next year because uh, I bet the whole I'm thing is just massive that. scale models of cool things. But yeah, I mean. Just cool. I mean, you're you're right. But there were a lot of different exhibitors there, and it's kind of like uh, you know, but it's like a big congress for this stuff. So it's cool. What do we? You know, that's the thing about today, Saudi Arabia. You know, should we do that over Seamless or Leap or any other none of these other amazing conventions and summits and exhibitions they're doing? It's just a it's just a nonstop, uh, you know, display of amazement. You know, coming through Saudi Arabia these days. It is. It's it's. Uh... It's happening right now. It's definitely <laughs> happening. So anyway, good one. Yella number two, Saudi Arabia welcomed positive results from discussions to reach a roadmap supporting the peace process in Yemen, the kingdom's foreign ministry said in a statement on Wednesday, after Houthi negotiators' talks with the Saudis in Riyadh. Houthi envoys left Riyadh on Tuesday after a five-day round of talks with Saudi officials on ending the eight-year-old conflict in Yemen, sources familiar with the meeting and Houthi media said. Some progress has been made on the main sticking points, including a timeline for foreign troops exiting Yemen and a mechanism for paying public wages, two sources said, adding the sides would meet for more talks after consultations, quote, soon, end quote. Um, yeah, this is an important point, and we include it not necessarily because there's a lot to say, but I mean, this is the first uh, official visit by the Houthis to the kingdom since in 20, since 2014. It's the first uh, visit post Iran Saudi detente, as it were. Um, there's a lot of things going on in the background. What what role is Iran playing? What role is the UAE playing in South Yemen? You know they have some other agendas. Saudi Arabia's got a lot of things they have to address. Saudi Arabia really wants to exit this, you know, politically exit this this uh, confrontation. Um, so as with everything that Saudi's doing right now, which is to talk to everybody, it's good that the diplomacy is underway. It's good that um, I know the U.S. is supportive of this. So it's good to maybe, you know, there's been some progress on this because I know Saudi Arabia in particular would love to find an exit here that's mm -hmm. palatable to everybody. Yep. Um, yellow number three. Saudi Arabia officially unveiled, quote, the garage, unquote, its latest addition to the thriving startup ecosystem in, uh, uh, in Saudi Arabia, situated within the King Abdullah City for Science and Technology in Riyadh, CAX, which is doing some interesting stuff. The garage spans an impressive 28,000 square meters, earning the title of the largest innovation district in the Middle East. 
The transformation of a former parking structure into a bustling workspace has given rise to this innovation hub, accommodating more than 300 startup companies. The facility boasts 24 state-of-the-art meeting rooms, an expansive event space capable of hosting over 1,000 individuals in dedicated workshop areas. In a span of 10 program cycles, the garage has successfully graduated more than 230 startup companies and nurtured 450 founders hailing from over 50 countries worldwide. Just very good. It's very good to see this. Very cool. And I think if this is successful, and you're right, Cass is doing some cool stuff. If this is successful, then five years from now, we will know some companies, maybe household names, not just in the Middle East, but around the world that at some point had their journey affected by the garage. And you just need a few success stories for that to be, for this to be worth it 10 times, 100 times over. Um, yeah, I mean, this is, this, is, this is exactly one of the pieces that Saudi Arabia needs to develop its local entrepreneurial ecosystem, local talent, technologies, like it needs things like this. And so this is very good and congrats to them. I saw a lot of the, uh, a lot of posts about it on social media this last week. I mean, this is going to change some people's lives over the next five to 10 years. This is a, this is a huge um, addition. Well, it's interesting. I mean, it was put in place in the middle of last year. So mm -hmm. it's been up and running. And there's so many of these things right now in Saudi, it's hard to keep track. It is curious. Uh, how something like this, so for example, our good friend Ian Abayou with Flat Six Labs, they do uh, early seed and pre-seed funding. So they're out helping, innovating, sparking, incubating, you know, entrepreneurs and that sort of thing. I mean, how does that, so that, but that's a private sector initiative. Mm -hmm. How does that, I mean, do, do some of their investments maybe take advantage of the garage space. And you, you know, uh, you, you wonder how it interacts with the ongoing other initiatives to incubate, um, you know, entrepreneurship and innovation. Uh, is it available to everybody and that sort of thing, but clearly it's been well used and it's been very active, you know, with more than 300 startup companies already running through this space. So it looks like it's being, you know, people are taking advantage of it. Yeah, classic startup, it, it did launch last year did the sort of stealth, you know, got the MVP out there, got some entrepreneurs in there, some investors in there, and then had a big unveiling to the larger public when it was established and well known. So it's kind of a cool way to do it. It's not, uh, it's, you it's know, a, yeah, it's, it's a good, good way to do it. And it, yeah. it, you know, it, it, you know, it brings more impact to the hit because you've got something, they've got it, you know, they've got a track record already. And, yeah. Uh, you know, a track record of success. So that's, that's nice to come out with that instead of saying we're thinking of doing something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And because this is government run, this isn't like a private, you know, um, a privately run kind of fund incubator thing. It's like a, a shared space. Investors love this stuff because this is where yeah. the ideas come and they just show up and they're like, hey, any good ideas, you know? So it's it's kind of it's I mean, this is this is a big this is not magic. The garage will not guarantee any number of unicorns or whatever, but it is you know, plant it's, it's fertilizer. So it's, it's cool. Um, and this is, you know, we we'll, we will hear a lot more about this. We will see a lot of events there. You'll have a lot of startups that benefit from getting out the door because they don't have to pay for a couple meeting spaces a week or some of the it support they need to get their app off the ground, et cetera. So, I mean, these, these things are great. This is awesome for 
the city and for the country and for the region. And, and I mean, innovation is contagious. So, I mean, bringing people together to one spot is always good in, in the startup space. And it's a, it's a nice example. It reminds me a little bit of the Saudi business centers run by the National Competitive, Competitive Center, which is Dr. Iman Al-Materia. She's part of the Ministry of Commerce. And by that, I mean, you're putting out this public service, which has significant private sector value, even though you're not necessarily deriving direct revenue from it. And, you know, the, the smart folks in the private sector. So, for example, on the Saudi business centers, I was laughing with Dr. Amman. She was saying what happens is lawyers from 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 corporates, Saudi and, and foreign, they come in and they do all their work and research in one go at the Saudi business center because it's got all every every ministry and everything you need all in one place. Then they go back and build their clients, you know, however it works. It doesn't matter because a larger purpose is served. Same thing with this. Whoever uses this, let's say a young, you know, an investment company, you know, uh, you know, a VC firm has has, you know, three investments in innovation, and they say, "Look, we want you to go plug in to the garage." You know, that's a, that's a that's a cost saving measure on their part, but it doesn't matter. It serves a larger purpose from Saudi Arabia's perspective. It serves a larger purpose, and and so it's just really, you know, it's a great asset and offering to to make available to to whoever whomever in this in the you know in the innovation and entrepreneurship area number number is it me no Uh, it's me sorry yep number four saudi nationals employed in the private sector have witnessed a substantial 45 percent increment in their salaries over the past five years per data released by the kingdom's national labor observatory as of now, a Saudi citizen working in the private sector can expect to earn an average month- monthly salary of $2,560, that's 9,600 rials, a significant rise from the $1,760 or 6,600 rials recorded in 2018. This development showcases a period of economic growth and potentially enhanced living standards for Saudi nationals working in the private domain. In a social media announcement, the National Labor Observatory cited economic reforms stimulus packages and bolstered support for the private sector as driving forces behind the surge in salary growth. Um, this is what you want. I mean, uh, yeah. you know, this is, you know, the, the old model, the old revenue model, single source energy, fossil fuel based is, you know, results in bloated government payrolls, uh, inefficiency, uh, a real drag on the on the national budget, and you know, the whole point of this is to invigorate the private sector and 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 attract young Saudis to to take that leap. Um, and it sounds like they're doing you know making real progress. I mean, the National Labor or Observatory, I guess, was was established in 2019, and, you know, with a specific purpose of boosting Saudi Saudiization and regulating the labor market. So this is nice. This is good news. And this is exactly what you want if you're trying to, you know, make the private sector a, a much more significant part of, you know, the, the overall GDP of the country. Yeah. It's been a long struggle to try to get that to be competitive. Yeah. 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 Um, Yellow number five. Uh, through this one, one just because it's we love football. Uh, founded in 1955 as a European Cup, the UEFA Champions League represents the pinnacle of European club soccer. 
with the best teams from across the continent all striving to lift the famous trophy. With 32 teams in eight brackets, uh, this year's group of death, quote unquote, is widely seen as Group F, which includes Paris Saint-Germain, AC Milan, or Russia Dortmund, and Newcastle United. According to Transfer Market, you know, all these obscure publications that we get into now because they track global football. I mean, I, I couldn't, I see Transfer Market now and then research all over the place, but, you know, you know, eight months ago, 12 months ago, and never. Anyway, according to Transfer Market, the combined value of the clubs in this group, this group F, group of death is 2.6 billion euros. The next closest group is group A at just over 2 billion euros. So, Yeah, um, this is such a good point about the obscure publications that we get into, and um, you know, and and just funny how uh, just there's this massive media giant that was just not on my radar until Saudi Arabia's interest in football, and now it's now I can't get away from it. You know, it's it's incredible. Yeah, this is really cool, very exciting. The group of death. The group of that. I just think it's fascinating to watch all of us, me included, but uh, significant swaths of the American public become educated about global football and things like things like Ted Lasso and things like Welcome to Wrexham, things like the coverage of Newcastle. You get to understand, you know, the economic value and the, econo- the economic cost of being of being relegated and the economic value of being promoted. So Newcastle, you know, gets to play in the champions league where the, the the you know the payout is over 2 billion euros over for the 32 teams because they finished in the top 4 of the premier league so you know you know not only did they avoid relegation when the saudis picked them you know bought them but they got themselves to the top of the league which has this added bonus i mean this is a you know it, it seems to me like uh, especially the Premier League and, and, you know, the rich get richer. Mm-hmm. If you can finish up top, you're going to have other opportunities to make a lot, have a lot more revenue, which will enable you to stay up top, which will get more revenue. And that's the virtuous cycle in terms of a business sense that they want to get into. But anyway, this was notable because here we are on the Champions Cup and Newcastle United is part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Really cool. I'm going to be watching some soccer this weekend, this week coming up. Um, kind of exciting. This is tis the season. So that's really And you cool. said that during the NFL season. That's quite the statement. Yeah. Well, it will have to compete with the NFL. And I don't <laughs> like its chances of those specific hours, especially when the 2 0 Washington Commanders play. I don't know. Yes. It's on Sunday, but. Who are yeah. playing? The Bills? Playing the Bills. Bills. I think we're yeah. playing the Bills. So <laughs> we're two and zero on Sunday yeah, we'll night. Yeah. Well, you got to celebrate it now. It may not be that way soon. I so. was looking. I was, you know, we both do fantasy football leagues, and I, uh, I don't like it when I have players on Thursday night and Monday night. So because it's four days of like going, oh my goodness, you know, am I stinking or am I? But you know, are my guys producing? But the the reverse, the converse of that is. Every one of my guys plays at one o'clock on Sunday, so I, there's no hope. You got a lot of yeah. four o'clock on Sunday. I will know if I had a good week or a bad week, and I'm going. Well, I don't know which one's better. <laughs> it's hard for me to stay into fantasy football 
this year because I've had so many incidents of having guys that produce on the bench. And so it's when that happens, you're just like, that stinks. He could have really, he could have won the day for me and he was sitting on the bench. So, but you you know how you, you know, the, the, the constellation there is your roster is so stacked. Um, yeah. That you have to leave people on the bench. (laughs) I'm so deep. (laughs) Yellow number six, Red Sea Global to bring Bear Grylls' survival brand to Saudi Arabia. Red Sea Global has teamed up with British adventurer and TV presenter Bear Grylls to bring his adventure and travel adventure, excuse me, and survival brand to Saudi Arabia. The Kingdom's Bear Bear Grill Survival Academy, BGSA, of course, will offer survival skills, wilderness education, and expedition leadership on a variety of courses, all designed by grills. Red Sea Global, the developer behind the Red Sea and Amala, will serve as the exclusive agent for the Bear Grill Survival Academy across the Kingdom. We, we both love this stuff. Yeah. Bear Girls <laughs> is the man. I, his shows are incredible. Is, I mean, I mean, we, you know, wouldn't this be fun to do? I mean, you're not going to die. You just go out and, you know, beat yourself up and crash about things and try and survive, but, uh, and then have fun doing it. And maybe you put yourself through some misery, but that's all, you know, that's all part of the story. I love this stuff. That's why I love the Dakar and I love, you know, anything that has you, you know, when we're talking about visiting in Alula or going to, uh, you know, ecotourism, I mean, uh, it'd be fun to bike through these things, to hike through these things. Uh, this would be awesome. This would be cool. Um, but give me Sindala Island and the golf course, <laughs> to be honest <laughs> with you. You can enjoy Bear Girls' Survival Academy and, and send me some pics and I'll be over there <laughs> playing golf. Well, do I get a choice? No, 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 Europe. No, this is too late. Said you're. It's too late. Yeah, you already said you'd do it. So, but uh, we will get the art from that at some point. And this is um, what's cool about this is that it isn't the Red Sea is not just for the ultra luxe, you know, hang by the pool yacht club experience. It is. It's got a lot to offer, and and will and the progress there kind of amazing. I just saw that John Pagano hopped on the first Saudia flight from Riyadh landing at the Red Sea airport this week. Of course he was, yeah, he's our, he's our guy. Um, he was, uh, what was he? Seat, seat one, group one boarding on the front yeah, of that flight. Sent a photo. I was like, yep. Is anybody else on that flight or is it just you? Um, no, I mean, that's that it, it's all happening there. And that is, and there's been some, you know, um, large media outlets recently talking about what's to come there. CNN did a piece this week on it. So another one of these things that's that's real and is coming and and could be a very compelling international, you know, tourist destination. I mean, I think it's on its way. So let's say let's say, you know, we had a windfall and we had the means to get there. Would you want to do Sindala or one of like one of those pods on Red Sea, uh, the Red Sea? you know, the pods on the water or, you know, one of the amazing things, I guess there's a, a IHG three, three resorts opening up on the Red Sea development by the end of this year. I mean, it, it it's, it's, it was, the experiences have just got to be amazing. Yeah. Well, we don't need a windfall. We just need a free invitation from either of those resorts to invite <laughs> us there and we will go. So no windfall needed. Um, so oh, I will yeah. la- I will leave my loyalty on that question to whoever oh, makes go. the offer oh, uh, first. Go. But if I had uh, a selection, I'd go with the golf because I love golf. But I don't know if the Red Sea is going to have golf nearby or what the plan is there. If they have golf, 
then maybe, you know, I can be lured down the Red Sea to the, the Red Sea resort. But hey, you know, um, I won't be picky until I have the choice. That's the thing. We are, not, we are not hard to get. No. Nope. Not hard to get. Um, Richard, this was a very, very good one. Thank you to Gautam Sachital for his time. Just so cool. And uh, we will be back next week with episode 105. Can't believe 105. it. 105. I've already lost count. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> you too.